Welcome to The Drummer's Pathway, the podcast about music, life, and the creative process. Hello, I'm Michael Scott, and welcome to The Drummer's Pathway podcast. On this episode, my guest is drummer Ray Levier. Based out of New York, Ray is an in-demand drummer who divides his time between session work, teaching, and working as a composer. At the age of 12, Ray was badly burned in a fire, which led to years of extensive recovery. Through his recovery, his passion drove him to adapt and overcome any obstacles he encountered, and he achieved his dream of becoming a drummer. Ray's positive attitude is infectious. Through sharing his story, he inspires others to face their own obstacles, turning discouragement into a commitment to excel and live their dreams. Let's get started. Ray, I have been a fan of your work since I first became aware of you on a podcast episode that you did a while back with Daniel Glass. Ah, Daniel. Where I was first inspired by your story, but the thing that I think most caught my attention was your passion and your determination and your commitment to your craft mm -hmm. and finding joy and purpose in your life. And that's really one of the things that made me want to want to connect with you today. And your playing is stunning and beautiful. And it's always a joy to, to watch all the things that you do. Wow. Well, thank you so much, Michael. I really appreciate it. Those are some really nice words and, uh, yeah, so I'm, it's an honor to be on your show and to be here. And um, anything you want to ask me, anywhere you want this to go, you know, just let me know and I will accommodate my best way. So you grew up in a musical family initially, and that is one of the things that kind of first sparked your interest in drums. Around the age of 12, there was also an accident of yeah. which in a lot of ways changed your life. And for those who Completely. aren't familiar with your story, I was hoping we can kind of go back to kind of the early days and just find out a little bit about your background and then we can pick things up from there. Absolutely. Sure. So I come from a musical family, uh, none of which were drummers. My dad is a great pianist. He still practices till this day. He's 83. Um, my Aunt Barbara was uh, really into jazz, and she was a very gifted jazz pianist, and she studied with Chick Corea and Lenny Tristano. And um, But she ended up just not really doing anything with it because she took care of her mom for, for most of her life, and uh, her mom, my grandma, was uh, you know not in the best of health later in years. My sister took piano lessons ever since I can remember. She's eight years older than me. So I remember getting going on car trips, you know, to this small little music store where she took piano lessons every week religiously. And I remember hearing, da -da 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 -da, you know, the scales and all that. And I think my dad tried to, you know, give me a couple piano lessons. And, but I had zero interest. You know, music just wasn't on my radar. You know, as a kid, you don't think, well, I got music in the family and uh, it's inspiring me. You know, musically, what inspired me was uh, my sister playing records. She had a, you know, really good record collection of like Led Zeppelin and Black Sabbath and Stevie Wonder and, you know, 
Earth, Wind, and Fire, and, and it was just Fleetwood Mac. It was all over the place. And so listening to music was something that I really enjoyed doing. But it wasn't till after my parents got divorced when I was about eight or nine. And I got to back up a little bit. My dad was doing rehearsals in our house and he found or bought a red uh, sparkle Slingerland kit, a four piece kit that um, I don't know if he bought it or acquired it or whatever, but he got it for rehearsals at the house. And um, so they, my dad was doing rehearsals at the house until my brother loved snakes. All right. So here we go. My brother had all these snakes and they kept getting out of the damn cage. So my, my uh, brother lost, he would find them eventually, some of them. And they would usually curl up like in between clothes in the drawer. And my mom would find a curled up snake. <laughs> and he, when she went to grab his shirt and she'd be like, yeah. Um, so this a particular snake was missing for a long time. And it was what's called a king snake where it's just black and white, black and white, not stripes, but patches going all the way down. it. Big snake, but very gentle, sweet snake, like non-aggressive snake, but it looked intimidating. So my dad's doing this rehearsal and the drummer saw the snake first <laughs> coming at him. <laughs> Coming at him across the floor. This guy flew off the drum set and like ran out the door and like wouldn't talk to my dad for like a month or something. Uh, and he was completely like one of those people that was deathly afraid of snakes. And um so anyway, that the the drums ended up in the basement. My parents got divorced. The drums ended up going to my grandmother's house where my dad was storing stuff. And I had, you know, my dad had custody on the weekend. So I'm at my grandmother's house where my dad was staying at the time, trying to figure out where he's going to find a place to live. So he was staying at my grandmother's house for a minute. And I'm with my dad on the weekends. And out of boredom, I saw this the kit in the basement and I pulled it out and I started banging on it. I, I knew nothing about drums. I had, I knew nothing about what time meant, what a backbeat was. Uh, how you're supposed, I knew boom, boom, check, boom, boom, check, but I didn't know that the other hand can keep time on the hi-hat. Yes. So, uh, you know, anyway, I'm banging on these drums and my grandmother after like two minutes is like, well, well, that's enough. That's enough. And I said, can I take them home? And she's like, sure. Get those things out of here. So I take these drums home and, uh, I set them up in my bedroom. And, um, from there, I, I guess like, oh, the kid down the street, this kid, Dave Janik was taking lessons and I went over to his house and still drums are just, it's not really on my radar. It's just, I like them because they're loud and they make noise. <laughs> and so I go down to Dave's house and he's taking drum lessons and he's showing me, it was, I think it was the, it was a song by Boston more than a feeling or something. And he's got two speakers behind him and he's playing along to this song. And it was like magic. And I was just like, completely stunned by how he could keep time and he was staying in time and he was playing the hi-hat and playing the snare and the kick drum. And I was like, wow, you got to show me that. So he came over to my bedroom and showed me this one or two rock beats. So that was my first lesson I got from the kid down the street, Dave. And then that summer, you know, it was literally like the next month 
we went down a Long Beach Island in New Jersey. It's a shore. And uh, we went down there for two weeks and we rented a house and we came back and we had this chicken coop in the backyard that we turned into like the local hangout clubhouse for the kids. And another I'm bored during the summer thing, we all fixed this clubhouse up. So my brother and I and our friend TR, who was a little older than us, decided to camp out when we got back from LBI. And it was a cold September night. And um, so I had like a full sleeping bag with me. Uh, I went to bed first and then TR and my brother went to sleep. I don't know when, a couple hours later. And they they went to sleep and nodded out with the candles burning. We had this kind of a makeshift candle holder. Like I, I was probably like a nail that was sticking up that you cram a candle down on. Uh, so anyway, I'm assuming the candle burnt down and just fell into the wall and the whole place caught on fire. And mind you, the chicken coop was, you know, old and completely rotten. And the thing went up, you know, like a tinder box. So um, the place is on fire and my brother wakes up and runs out thinking he's the only one in there. TR gets tripped on by my brother. He wakes up and he runs out. And as he's running out, that's when I started waking up and he heard me screaming and he uh, came back in. And I, so in my mind, I'm having, you know, the reality is what, just what I told you. But in my mind, I'm having a dream that I'm walking to the beach at LBI. I'm da- back down at LBI and I'm walking to the beach and the fence lining the the walkway encircles me and I'm trapped in the fence and the sand starts getting hotter and hotter and hotter. And that's my brain trying to wake me up, you know? Um, and then I hear this voice saying, put your hands in your mouth, you know, over your hand, eyes in your mouth and don't breathe. Then I see like spots of the grass burning. And uh, I think, wow, this is a weird dream. And I I have no idea that I'm not dreaming. I'm just assuming I'm still dreaming. I'm in shock. And then TR is yelling at me saying, don't move. Stay here. I'll be right back. So he runs up to the house and knocks on the door. And my mom and Eric, uh, my mom's boyfriend at the time, uh, they looked out the window and they were like, Jesus, oh, my God. And uh, so Eric called the fire department. My mom ran out down by the fire to see what was going on. And um, so I'm, I think I'm at the beach and I'm, I, I'm, I'm in a grassy field, but I think I'm looking at sand because, you know, my eyesight isn't doing that great. And I'm looking at this tree and I'm like, wow, that's really weird that a tree would grow in the sand, not knowing that I'm looking at an apple tree in the middle of a field. And then I'm just trying to figure out, am I dreaming? Am I not dreaming? So I, I go to touch myself and, and then I notice something's not right. And it doesn't feel right. And it hurts. And then my body starts coming online and I'm starting to feel excruciating pain. And then I get really scared and my heart's pumping. And I just, all I could think of as a 12 year old kid is I want my mommy. And all of a sudden my mom is there and, and I'm like, you know, what's, what's going on? Am I okay? And she's like, yeah, you're fine. You know, uh, just hang in there. And so I had this, deep dark tan from being at the ocean for two weeks. And so it was dark and my mom thought that everything was fine. And they were worried about my brother because my brother was worried about getting in trouble. And he was, you know, 13 years old and 
He just was worried about getting in trouble. He didn't think anybody got hurt and that we created this big fire and like he was going to run away and come back when things cooled out. So he just kind of like ran off down into the local woods and was just cooling out down there. He didn't know I got caught in the fire. He had no idea. So uh, they rushed me to a burn unit and uh, I spent six months in a burn unit close to seven. And the only reason they let me go home was because I started losing it mentally. And, you know, it's a long time to be in a hospital. So they let me go home. And my mom basically became my nurse because all they had been doing lots and lots of skin grafts, but parts of my upper body were still not completely covered. You know, they still had to do some more surgery, which entailed taking skin from my lower extremities, uh, which were not burned. And you know, doing a skin graft. And then you take that piece of skin and you put it where you need it. And uh, it takes, it grabs the blood vessels underneath. So um, that was the process for six months, you know, do an operation and, you know, it just knocks you down and then get them healthy enough. And then like, you know, get, get them back into the hospital. I mean, back into the ER and, um, so that was what I did for six months. And uh, it was, you know, painstakingly just difficult for a 12-year-old kid to go through that type of pain. Luckily, your mind shuts a lot of that out. But in my mind, I just all I kept thinking about was drums and drumming. And I was having a hard time one day. And my mom said, think of healing thoughts, you know, think of what makes you feel good. And I said, oh, what makes me feel good? Uh, the drums. And I gravitated towards thinking about the drums quite a bit. And then I think I had a, a birthday or something in the hospital and I was really bummed out because I'm like, God, oh, it's my birthday and I'm stuck in the hospital. And my dad was like, don't worry, when you get out, we'll get you a brand new drum kit and you can play the drums and, you know, life goes on type of thing. He was just trying to sugarcoat a very bad situation. So I didn't find out about this till much later but the nurse heard my father saying this and she pulled him aside on his way out and said i understand you're trying to make your son feel better but i don't think it's a good idea that you should get his hopes up um you know he's been through enough already and my dad just basically from what i understand said you don't know my son and just walked away so lo and behold i get out of the hospital and uh i'm home recuperating and uh so my the day comes where my dad says, let's get you that drum set. Or I, I was probably like, remember you said you give me the, <laughs> so, <laughs> so we went up to this local music store, a really small music store. And the only drum set they had in there that was brand new was this Maxwin by Pearl. So it was like this entry level kit, black, uh, you know, entry level kit. It wasn't anything amazing, but in my eyes, it was the most amazing drum set I had ever seen. So, uh so yeah i got the kit maximum by pearl it was a black wrap and um i remember the symbols were avanti my dad got me a crash symbol and these were like really kind of pie plate crappy symbols but i didn't care so i got a 16 inch avanti crash 14 inch hi-hats and my dad the only thing that he had uh symbol wise from that red sparkle Slingerland kit was this amazing Zildjian A 20 inch from the 60s that just had this. I still have it in the bag there, and it has this incredible 
perfect, like, you know how some Zildjians are good, some are kind of not so great. This was like the pick of the pick of A's. And I still have that symbol today. And it just, the stick response is amazing and it's buttery and it's got like the perfect balance of overtones. And it, it just has a little bit of wash and you can, you know, you can crash on it. And it's just a very, just an awesome symbol. Anyway, that was the ride symbol that was on that kit. So that was, that was what I got. And, um, you know, I, I don't know, like, yeah, I was in seventh grade at that time. And, you know, I was just kind of playing the drums, just messing around as a hobby. And I, I knew my one drum beat. Um, and I think my dad said something like, you know, if you're going to play the drums, you should take lessons. And I was like, yeah, sure. All right, bring it on. So my dad did this gig with this guy, Sal LaRocca, who is an amazing jazz drummer, played with Jun the Junior Man's Trio. It was like, I think that's like one of the bigger gigs he did, but you know, local guy that played around with everybody. And he happened to do some gigs with my dad. And my dad was very impressed by his drumming and knew that he was a teacher and said, you should, I have this guy's number. So we gave him a buzz. And um, so this was a little later that I started taking lessons. But uh, so Sal came to my house and Sal like had a really hard time when he saw me in my situation and he, he felt like he wanted to cry he was just like oh my god but he he was so endeared that i wanted to play the drums and had passion for this that he was like all right we're gonna do this we're gonna make it work and we're gonna figure this out he started giving me rudiments and started getting me to learn how to read got me in a couple books i think he got me in the ted reed syncopation book and stick control and realistic rock by carmen apathy and those are probably the first three books that I got. But, you know, it was too much rudiments and too much reading. And I was just, I think at this time I was 13 or 14 or 15. And I just wanted to learn how to play beats, basically. And, and this was too much work, you know. So I, I think I kind of lied to him and said, I can't afford the lesson, Sal. And I think he even said, like, well, I'll give you a cut rate. And I'm like, no, that's OK. Uh, you know, we're having a really hard time here. And. And basically, I was afraid of the guy because he had like this. Uh, I don't know if you remember Charles Bronson, who was yep. an actor. And he had this, he kind of looked like Charles Bronson. And he wore a leather jacket and he was very deadpan. Like nothing got, he he wasn't emphatical and nothing really got him excited. I was really afraid of him. And I came home late to the lesson once. And, you know, as a kid, you look at someone who's older and it, you, it feels like they're going to kill you. But they're just trying to instill some, some uh, you know real life values yeah. yeah yeah exactly so uh anyway i sought out this other drummer uh teacher keith crane and keith got it you know he understood he was dealing with the kid and he was like all right first lesson he gave me like two or three beats and he's like you know how to read and i was like yeah a little bit so again i like he was like oh you got the apathy book this is a great book and so um what else did he put me in um funky thesaurus primer or something like that yeah the funky primer yeah yeah he got me in that book and maybe a joe morello book and maybe like uh accents and rebounds the second book by stone so yeah and he turns on a click track a, a metronome that i had plugged into a speaker and uh he was like you got to learn how to play you know to a click 
So I was like, all right, put it on. And he puts it on and it sounds like the batteries aren't working because every time I try to play with it, the click is gone. And I'm like, does this thing need batteries? And he just starts laughing. He's like, no, man. He's like, there's nothing wrong with the click. It's you. (laughs) And I'm like, really? He's like, yeah, look, get up. And he sits down and plays like rock solid to the click. I'm like, oh. And that was like an epiphany of like how important it is to play solid time. So uh, Keith really instilled some great traits in my playing. And uh, I studied with Keith maybe two or three years. And by that time, I was playing in this rock band, like a heavy rock band. We were doing mostly covers, you know, Aerosmith and Metallica and whatever. And uh, we had a couple originals. And um, so he was helping me in that situation. I'm like, what do you play? Like, here's the here's the song. And I don't know what to play. So he was really helping me out with like, real world scenarios and then the lead singer of this band was the older kid and um he was like 18 or or maybe he was 20 something and i was 16 or 17 and he's like i've been in a band before and we used to play here and there and all that and he had this talk and he walked the walk or he couldn't walk the walk but he had to talk yeah and uh so he was going to be our leader of the band and you know so he's like, you know, we need to record. And uh, so let's get a, a, it was either a reel-to-reel or a ADAT or something like that. And we rented it and we had a small mixing board with a PA. So we plugged into that and we had a few mics. He says that first we record the guitar and the bass and then we'll do the drums. And I don't know, if, you know, if anything from anything. So I go along with it. I'm like, all right, cool. So you know, and of course, there's some beer drinking going on. And like, I don't think this guitar player had great time without beer and then add a couple beers into it. And now <laughs> we're talking like wavy gravy. The time is so loose, you know, and he lays down his track. No click, no nothing. Just here we go. And then I, it's my turn to lay down my track and I can't play along with the guitarist and the bass player. But I don't think anything's wrong with his time because, again, he's older and I'm the young kid and like, I don't want to seem like a pompous jerk and say something. So I'm trying to play along to this and I can't, and I keep losing where he's at. And then I'm devastated by this. And I think, you know, back to my metronome and I have horrible time and it's me because I can't keep time with a metronome. That's why I can't keep time with this guy. So I think Keith heard the tracks or I just told him what happened the guy I was studying with and uh, I told him what happened and I told him that we recorded the guitar and then the bass and then the drums. And he stops me mid sentence and says, what you recorded the guitar and the bass first. He said, let me ask you something. Do you build, if you're going to build a house, do you build it from the roof down, starting with the shingles and then, you know, put the sheathing on and then beams all the way down to the floor or do you start with a foundation? And I was like, well, everybody knows the answer to that. It's a foundation. And he's like, well, music is no different, Ray. Mm-hmm. He's like, you got to start with the foundation. And the foundation of any band is the drummer. And I was like, really? He's like, yeah, really? <laughs> and I was like, okay. Like, I knew nothing. So I'm learning all this as I'm going. Um, things aren't working out in the band. And I'm getting yelled at because, like, you know, I'm just, I'm a nice kid. Like I'm nice. I don't have any aggressiveness in me at all. And I'm kind of a pacifist by trait. So he's yelling at me and 
course, everybody yells at the drummer. It's always their fault, right? So he, my mom, you know, we're in my garage and my mom hears this guy yelling at me and she comes out and she's like, what the heck are you yelling at? Well, Raymond, blah, 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 blah. And like my mom just like, she lost it. And she's the sweetest, kindest woman, very soft-spoken. And what came out of her was like, just shocked everybody. She's like, you get the F out of here. Nobody yells at my kid that way. And my mom is a really protective mama bear because after all we've been through, you know, she just put up with this, with the drinking and the, you know, all this noise because I was alive and I wasn't dead and I wanted to play the drums and this was making me happy. But now she saw I wasn't happy with these guys. And so basically, from what I remember, we made him sign a contract saying that he had nothing to do with me or the band or the house. And we, I paid for this like demo. We did two or three songs in the studio, which were never used. I mean, they weren't that great, obviously, but that was a way to get rid of him that my mom figured out like, all right, we're just going to like get this guy out of your life. And um, so that was like the best at the time it was the worst, but at the, in hindsight, it was the best thing that ever happened to me because I had been reading Modern Drummer a whole bunch and I kept reading about, you know, these guys could swing like, you know, Bill Ward from Black Sabbath grew up on jazz and listening to Max Roach and Elvin. And, you know, like all these guys grew up listening to jazz that were becoming my heroes. Like I started getting into like jazz fusion and I finally discovered Steve Gadd, who's there on your wall. Yeah. And, um, you know, it was very incestuous. Like you find Steve Gadd's name and then you go to the store to Tower Records and it's like, oh, there's Gadd. Who's he playing with? Uh, Michelle Pertutriani. I never heard of this guy, but up oh, his Gadd's on there. It's got to be good. So I started getting turned on to jazz that way. It would, I would literally go like a science researcher and I go to Tower Records and I just find, try to look for names that I saw in Modern Drummer. And you get an idea of who's badass because you see him like in all the ads, like, well, there's Steve Gadd in a Remo ad and there's Vinny in a Remo ad and there's Buddy Rich. And like, so by default, I just figured out like who were the players. And I realized then and there that like, I should go to school for jazz. Like, you know, I don't know anything. And um, jazz seems to be the backbone of, you know, everything, you know, that springs out of that. And um you know, jazz is, jazz is our American heritage, you know, jazz and blues kind of had their own thing. And jazz is basically a form of blues that, you know, went its own way. And, you know, if you look at the, uh, the family tree, it all comes from the roots and lineage. And I started like figuring all this stuff out, you know, and I realized like, you know, I was just really into rock and metal and like, didn't know anything, didn't know any of these drummers. The only you know, classic drummers I knew was like guys from Led Zeppelin and Bonham and and uh, Joey Kramer from Aerosmith and Bill Ward from Black Sabbath. And so that's kind of how I, you know, got started with jazz. I came through in the back door. And so I wanted to go to jazz school. And now this is on my radar. And I realized I got to study with Sal again. So I called up Sal thinking, you know, he'd be mad at me or whatever. But he couldn't be more happy to hear from me again. And he was like, of course, I'll teach you. Of course, you want to get into college? He's like, we're going to do this. And 
you know, so I was deciding on a college and I started looking around and I looked at Texas state and I was like, wow, it's all in Texas. And I looked at university of Miami, uh, that was in Miami. And that was like way down South from where I was in New York. And, uh, uh, going into the city for college was just too much money and too much, you know, red tape getting through the traffic and all that logistics. Sal went to William Patterson. He was a percussion major. And um, they had Ray DeRoche was his instructor. And Ray DeRoche is like a world famous classical uh, percussionist. And he uh, just amazing and played with Stravinsky. And he he uh, he had the um, Rutgers percussion ensemble which was like one of the best percussion ensembles in the country uh so anyway Ray Roche was his teacher at William Patterson so I ended up going to William Patterson I made a demo with my dad my dad played organ uh we did like three songs like a ballad a medium and a latin or up or something like that I was shocked that they accepted me and I'm going to college oh my god it's gonna happen <laughs> so like next thing I know I'm in college and like they threw me in with the lions. They, you know, they didn't really know my ability from the demo. So they put me in like one of the better ensembles. And like, I, I've never played with an upright bassist before, never played with any musicians outside of rock and heavy metal. And my dad, the guy, well, I'm in an ensemble. And one of my first memories and experiences is the guy counts off the tune. One, two, and here's two and four, but in my mind, as a rocker, I'm hearing one, two, three, four, one, two, three, four. Yeah. So he counts it off and I'm backwards. Whoa, 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 stop, stop. All right, let's try that again. One, two, one, two, one, two, three, four. <laughs> and this went on like maybe two or three times. And now I'm like getting very flustered and I'm freaking out because I know these guys are like, they're just like, they're like, what is up with this drummer? And the fact that I'm burned and like, you know, they're thinking like, maybe he's got some mental disabilities too. I don't know. <laughs> so then he, he's like, where are you hearing the time? I think the saxophone player was like, where are you hearing the time? And I was like, one, two, three, four. And he's like, oh, no, 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 no. He's like, one, two, three, four. And I was like, oh, okay. So we counted it off and we went in and now I'm on time. But like, you know, I, I basically like had my swing was horrible. And so I think they wanted someone else that was a little further along in their ensemble because I was really holding them back. And I was like, I couldn't agree more. I was like, I feel bad for these guys. Like they're paying their money to go to school to have some drummer that like can't keep up. So meanwhile, I started studying with uh, John Riley and Horace Arnold were the two drum instructors. And um, so I, I didn't graduate. I, I did three and a half years. Uh, and I had to bail. I had to drop out because I started, I was playing so much. Um, I started playing in like a couple other rock bands and I was practicing like six to eight hours a day. And then I had a pencil or a pen in my hand and I just overloaded my wrist. And I thought it was carpal tunnel because it hurt like hell. And I didn't know anything about carpal tunnel. And that's what everybody was saying. Yeah, you probably have carpal. So I actually had to drop out of William Patterson, like somewhere in my third year, which was devastating. But a lot of guys for that, mostly bass players would come in, they play electric. Now you got to play upright and it's a completely different animal, completely different technique from upright to, 
to electric. So a lot of these guys would go in these groups and they have to do, 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 you know, play these fast tempos all day and they would get tendonitis. And so I'm like, oh, great. I got tendonitis too. I don't know if you've ever heard of Rolfing. No. Okay. So Rolfing is this woman, Ida Rolf came up with this. She fell off a horse and sprained her ankle and she started manipulating her tendon very hard. And because I guess she had to walk out of there or something that so she came up with this thing called Rolfing, where it's manipulating your tendons and your posture to get really like on top of yourself because everybody's posture is horrible. So if you research Rolfing, anybody that's interested, us drummers and musicians put ourselves into precarious positions for hours at a time. So I found out about Rolfing and my mom's friend was a Rolfer. And he came to the house. And I was telling him about my situation and he, he's like, which, which hand is it? He's like, give me your wrist. So he's talking to me and I'm talking to him about, I think it's tendonitis and blah, blah, blah. And he's like digging in. Is this where it hurts? Ah, yeah, yeah. Right, right there, right there. So he's like, I'm like, ah, that hurts. He's like, that's all right. You'll be okay. And he's digging. And then literally two minutes of this, he stops. And I was like, my wrist, it feels better. He's like, you don't have tendonitis. You, you got a lot of scar tissue in there and it's impeding your tendon that pulls up your wrist. So uh, I went to this guy and he I went to him for probably close to two years. And like every week I would go to him religiously and he'd like completely fixed me. You know, it took time and I had to, it was really hard mentally because I couldn't play the drums. Mm -hmm. Every time I kept playing, I would re-injure myself and I had to take some time off. And I was just so immersed in practicing and I didn't want a girlfriend. I didn't want anything but learning how to play the drums. And I would practice anywhere from eight to six to 12 hours a day. And it still wasn't good enough. And I, the only reason I stopped is because, you know, after 12 hours, my body was like, all right, we've had enough for today. My back would be screaming. And like, I didn't know anything about posture really, you know? So I went to this Rolfer and I started, you know, again, a negative turned into a positive. That's kind of been my method of operation in life. It's like, whenever life gives you lemons, you got to make lemonade. And that's kind of been my superhero strength. So again, I'm like, all right. And we had a local health food store, vitamin shop. And I went in there and I talked to the woman and there's this nutritional health book. It's like this massive book that uh, most health food stores have. So I told her my situation and she thumbs to the back of the book where it says tendonitis. And she's like, I know you don't have tendonitis, but it's a, a tendon thing that we need to work on or whatever. So she said, for tendonitis, you should be taking this and this. And so I went home with like $200 worth of vitamin supplements. <laughs> and I started looking into nutrition and, you know, eating right. And like, so it got me down on this like holistic path of taking care of my body. And um, so, yeah, that's um, kind of like my introduction into music, you know. And then I, I finally got better. And the other part of the story is like, you know, you want something way too much. And it's, it means too much to you and you end up hurting yourself. You know, it's like going to the gym and you want your muscles so bad that you just don't know when to quit. Mm -hmm. And that was me. I just didn't know when to get up off the instrument and take a break. You know, it was like I had this taskmaster 
that's, you know, myself, but he's yelling at me saying, you know, you started late, you're battling against this problem with your hands and you have to work twice as hard to get your hands, um, you know, to get some chops in your hands. And like, so I overdid it and I paid the price, but I learned from it and realized, you know, and I think someone said to me, you know, drumming isn't who you are. It's what you do. And I was like, what are you talking about? It's, it's everything. It's everything I am. And that sunk in later in life, you know, where it's like Kenny Werner. I don't know if you've read any of his books. Yeah, absolutely. And Kenny talks about if you're basing your happiness and who you are as a person upon your performance on that instrument, that's a very sad and dismal life. And I was like, wow, that's what another way of saying it's not who you are, it's what you do. For myself, I've been you know, playing drums for 40 years and I learned to kind of find balance in my yeah. life. And one of the things that I found is that I had devoted so much time to trying to do everything that I thought I was supposed to do that it didn't make me happy. Yeah. It wasn't until I actually sort of stepped away from certain situations yeah, totally. that I realized I have to figure out myself first yeah, and then yep. start adding back in the things that I want rather than doing all the things that I think I'm supposed to want. And that mm. is a very difficult thing to deal with. And one of the very. things that I also found for me is that even though I've been playing for 40 plus years, I've had some amazing instructors and I have a wealth of access to some incredible information. But what I found was it wasn't until probably going back about the last 10 years that I actually had to learn how to learn and how yeah. to practice. Yeah. Once I learned how to learn and how to practice, what I found was it involved less time commitment yep. and more takeaway. So I could yep. go down and spend 15 minutes in my practice studio with a very focused practice. Mindful present. Exactly. And in a week, accomplish more than I've accomplished yeah. in six months working on something. Yeah. And I walk away from my drum set and my practice session feeling motivated and inspired. And then I can take that yeah. passion and I can move that into the, the shows that I play or the sessions that I do. And by yeah. stepping back, learning the skill set to reevaluate your approach and reevaluate what's important to you brings that passion back. And yeah, it's okay to not have the same path that everyone else has, mm -hmm. but sometimes you have to go through all of that to figure out the things that you actually don't want to do yeah. and, and devote your energies to the things that matter. And that's sort of a sense of experience and maturity. One of the things that I have a goal to do is that I decided because I've been sort of a, a freelance musician for so long and most mm -hmm. of my career that I really wanted to write a solo album. But I suddenly realized that the reason I hadn't been writing is because at some point I had told myself years ago that I was a player and I didn't have a talent or the capability to compose. Yeah. That's just a matter of having to refocus your mindset Yep. And realize I have the capability to do anything that I want. Yeah. I just have to start and I have to allow myself the permission to mm -hmm. explore and to try and experiment. And those are the things that will actually help you achieve stuff because 
getting over the roadblocks that you've put in your own headspace mm -hmm. is often the biggest challenges. Isn't that a trip? Yeah, that's you nailed it on the head. You said it very eloquently. And it's so true. It's like what we allow ourselves to welcome into our lives and what we think we're worthy of or not worthy of. And, oh, I'm a drummer. I don't know anything about. And I went through all of that during college. Like I was just a drummer. I didn't know anything about notes. And, you know, the, I took a piano minor. Uh, it's part of the requirement. Yep. And then I ended up studying with Ray DeRoche with a mallet minor with him, which I had some incredible lessons with him. And I was really lucky to study with him because he was a master. I mean, he played with Stravinsky and he, the guy was just incredible. But even, you know, till a few years ago, I really was stuck in that mindset of, oh, you know, I'm not that good. I'm, you know, but, the, you know, it's really just what what you're believing in. and we can prove ourselves wrong at any point. And you have to understand that most of what you think about is just, it's thought, it's not reality. It's just a story. It's a made up story, you know, and how many of us believe in that made up story that, you know, has nothing to do with reality. And like, how many of us have made stories about a gig and then, you know, we, we get ourselves all worked up about how it's going to go down and what's going to happen. And then you get there and it's different and everything flows much better than we thought. And we finally relax. And like, you know, some of us are more uptight than others. And like, I'm, I'm pretty uptight, you know, I can relax, but I worked that advantage for myself because, you know, that made me practice and get to a certain level in a very short time. I think most of my, knowledge for drumming got poured into my head, you know, at a very short time of like two years when I was very impressionable and I didn't have any distractions. This is pre cell phone. This is, you know, just me with records or cassettes in the basement and, you know, no distractions. And my mom would like cook dinner and I just, I had it made, you know, and it's like, so anybody listening that's young and, you know, keep your cell phone out of the room and like take advantage of being at home before you got to go out and work a stupid job to pay the rent and wishing that you could have the time to practice, you know? Mm -hmm. So that said, as when I was a kid, I realized like, how am I going to be able to do this when I get out into the world and still have, I want a lot of time to practice because I felt like, this is a lifelong journey for me. You know, this isn't something I'm going to get to and be like, Oh, I'm done. I'm, you know, so I'm now 53 and I'm like, I still practice a lot, but like you were saying, like, um, I, you know, all that stuff that prevented me from, you know, how many hours I practiced six to 12 hours, but how many of that was like actually, you know, productive. I mean, anytime you sit down on the drum throne, it's, it's a good thing, but how, you know, how much more productive could I have been? So these are all the things that I, you know, was trying to strive for. And, you know, as you get older, you start to learn and you, you get smarter about, you know, work smarter, not harder type of mentality. For me, I'm a book guy. I find getting a new book to work on that I can put on my shelf to me inspires yeah. me. Yeah, me too. 
the problem is, is that because in a lot of ways, I'm such a perfectionist, I would have to get the page perfect before I could flip the page to the next one. And yeah. then once I flip the page, I start working on that one. Then I start doubting, did I really actually get the previous one correct? Yeah. So it would take me a long time to go through because yeah. I kept setting these really high, unrealistic expectations. And I remember yeah. because I've been a student of Dom Family Arrows for a number of years. Dom's great. Good friend. One of the things that I had learned from him was that it's not about having to perfect the page. It's about the discipline of putting in the time on a daily basis. When you get to the end of the week, you flip the page. Yeah. And then you do that week after week. Yeah. And then when you get to the end of the book, that's where the skill set comes into play. It's not about the mastery of it. It's about the right. dedication and the commitment. And then when you get to the end of it, then you're so inspired, you almost want to flip back to the beginning because you're ready for the next round. Oh, uh, totally. I've been through some books like three or four times because they're great books. And, you know, I mean, look at the stick control book. How many ways to go through that? And look at Ted Reed syncopation, how many ways to go through that? It just goes on and on and on. And there's so many great books that like I'll be in for the rest of my life because I just love them and what's inside them. The Chafee books I'm, I'm wild about. When I found Gary Chafee's method, I just bought every single one of his books and I'm still in his books today. And, I, you know, Stravinsky said, great composers bar, a good composers borrow, great composers steal. And I'm still stealing stuff out of the book and trying to bring it on the bandstand um till this day and um i'm working on a book right now speaking of all this and being able to be mindful um this is all leading up to who i am as a person and having a hard time concentrating and feeling i'm not good enough and you know just getting caught caught up in the in the framework of what you're trying to do um i just got a, a an okay from the people at hudson music from rob Wallace at Hudson Music to go ahead and do a book for them. And it's kind of a holistic approach to drumming. Uh, it's a methodology book that that helps you get the most mileage out of any idea you work with. And it's um, kind of a tip of the hat to all the teachers that showed me what you can do with Ted Reed and coming up with ideas based off syncopation and the stick control book based off just the stickings and coming up with tools to uh, come up with some creative ideas for drum fills or tom, you know, groove ideas or whatever, Latin ideas. So, uh, you know, I've been going down that road ever since, you know, I was studying with John Riley and he's like, oh, go through the book this way. And I was like, wow, I never thought of that. So these are kind of my own personal ideas that I've come up with through the years uh by default you know by accident most of them not by default so that's in there of how to get the most mileage out of syncopation and using the power of permutations to get the more mileage out of any idea so i take you know like chafee ish type of patterns and i run them through the permutations the way that um dave garibaldi did in his mm -hmm. future sounds book and that's where i got the ideas from dave garibaldi and you know Again, I'm stealing because that's what good composers. <laughs> so David Gerbaldi's book, Future Sounds, to me is one of the most important books ever written on the subject. Classic. And I mm -hmm. went through it years ago, a couple of times, kind of on my own. Then I actually took 
some lessons with David. And nice. although we use the book, a lot of his philosophies are really about finding your own voice and embracing yep. your own yep. ideas yep. and believing in your own ideas. He yep. said, Cause to you, if good idea that inspires you, it's a good idea. Not everyone needs to like your idea. You just need to be passionate about your exactly. ideas. I often find if I'm able to study with the person who wrote the book, I will take a lesson because you often need to understand the concept and the intention that the author had behind the book rather than just looking yeah, at the book. Yeah, you can go itself. deeper. Yeah, sure. Yeah, absolutely. But the, the whole reason I, I want to write this book is not because the world needs another Trump book, but it's because I, I found it necessary because I've always had such a hard time focusing and getting grounded and believing in myself and all this gibberish that's in your head that prevents you from, from being awesome. Uh, and you know, when you're practicing and you're, you're in flow, mm -hmm. um, you know, you know yep. that you can play and I've had, have had those situations. And so anyway, the drum, the book is called drumming in flow. And I've had situations where I'm in my basement and I'm in flow and everything's great. And then I get to the gig and I get to the bandstand. I'm like, where did that guy go? And it was always just completely stumped me of why do I get nervous and why do I hold myself back? And like, I know I have the goods, you know, not egotistically, like very humble as a player, probably too humble, but I know I can play. And then I get on the bandstand and then I'm like thinking about this or I'm, I'm not there, just not there. So or you question yourself. Yeah, all of the above. Something will come up and you're just going, I'm not 100% sure I got this. Yet right. you in the practice room have played it dozens of times flawlessly, but then the mental aspect comes yeah. in and, and it challenges you. Yep. So the exercises, the whole book is meant to be practiced with breathing modalities, um, the science of meditation, and, and how to learn skills faster through neuroscience. And uh, I've been doing a lot of research with this. And so meditation is nothing more than focusing your mind, pinpointing your focus in one spot and trying to keep it there. And that's what we do as drummers. Uh, so you're you're training your brain to, to come back. And that's, for me, meditation isn't Oh, gee, I sat for two hours without thinking a single thought like that's impossible to me, you know, but it's about becoming aware and mindful and purposeful that, oh, I've become the observer now and I've just lost my train of thought and I'm thinking about what I'm going to cook for dinner or whatever. Bring it back. So I come back and oh, now I'm worried about the traffic going to the gig. Bring it back. So it's really you're you're training yourself to come back and you're, you're, you're putting that on the table that basically your knee jerk reaction. I was knee jerk reaction where you go, ah, and you're just, you're gone, you know, and you don't have the tools to be like, well, as the witness to be like, Ray just lost focus. So that's part of the book is the meditation and all this, you know, how do we get to flow? You know, it doesn't happen when you, you know, make flow, get in here, flow. We're going to flow tonight. Yeah. You know, the more you do that, it's like the bird you're trying to wait for very quietly. 
the bird might come and roost right outside your window. But if you're screaming and yelling, you're never going to see the bird. And that's kind of the, the metaphor for that, you know? So there's tools we need to, to get ourselves focused. And, you know, meditation is one of them. And the other one is just how the brain functions. Like you got to understand it as a computer and it's, it's an organic chemical dumping computer. And when you're frustrated, that's neuroepinephrine and adrenaline that's kicking in because you're getting stressed out and that helps focus, you know, and if you can follow through that focus and get to the other side, then you get the serotonin dump where you feel good. Oh, wow. We got through that page, you know, or whatever. So, but if you get up in the middle of it, you're, you're practicing losing or you're practicing, you know, just getting stressed out. So you got to follow through with it. You know, so that's part of what I discuss in the book. And I don't go in depth about this stuff. They're kind of peppered, you know, within the exercises as food for thought. And um, so, you know, there'll be a little thing up front about what we're going to get into. And the other thing is like, you don't need my book to, you know, go through. You can use this breathing modality and your new way of learning how to learn skills faster uh, through any book. And the third aspect of the book, the most important one that all the exercises are meant to be followed with is breathing. Mm -hmm. So rhythmic breathing does amazing things. Scientifically, they figured out that if you can breathe rhythmically to a metronome at 60 beats per minute or whatever, like you go almost into a trance state. So rhythmic breathing is part of what we start out with in the book. And then the other part is what the Navy SEALs use called box breathing. And when they get dumped into any situation that's high stress and they got to like focus on good guy, bad guy, remain calm and don't shoot the child because you had an itchy trigger finger, you got to be calm. So I read this book and I forgot the author's name, but he talks about he had he had the opportunity to talk to a Navy SEAL instructor. And he said, what are your boys thinking before they get you know, they go down the rappel line on a helicopter into battle. He said, they're all doing box breathing. And I was like, wow. So that like really hit me. So I was like, all right, well, I'm going to take this box breathing and make exercises to, you know, that you can do. So if you're adding this breathing element in your mind doesn't, you're, and you're trying to do an exercise, let's say a single stroke roll, just for a beginner. It's kind of what I start out with. If you're doing box breathing and you're breathing in for four beats, holding the in in beat in breath, sorry, for four beats, and then you breathe out for four beats and you hold the out breath for four beats, your your brain is all caught up in this and you don't have time to think about did I, you know, what am I cooking for dinner or whatever. So uh that's the premises behind the book in a very long-winded fashion. But anyway, it's it should be coming out and uh the book I should be done with the the transcript around uh, fall and whatever happens with the company, we'll see what time we get it out, but hopefully next early next year. Well, you've definitely sold one because I'm intrigued and I will pick it up nice, man. as soon as it gets released because I, I love this philosophy. And I've had a couple of teachers as well emphasize the importance of breathing and kind of work on yeah. basic breathing techniques because when you're trying to learn and the anxiety kicks in, then you hold, the your whole, the, you hold your breath and your whole body tenses up and it makes yep. everything infinitely more difficult. Well, you, so, you cut off the energy. 
And so what you need to do is that you need to relax and it changes your touch. It changes your approach and it changes your whole perspective. Yep. Yep. I love this philosophy and I can't wait to check out this book. Great, man. Thanks. And there's, you know, this has just been by trial. Like I just, like I said, I realized like I know how to play, but I'm so uptight, you know, and it's like, I got to relax. Like, how do I relax? And so again, turning lemons into lemonade is, is the most crucial thing you can do as a person and a musician is to be like, all right, we have this, this is our current current situation. And I want to go over here, but I can't, what's preventing me. And you got to kind of just figure it out and like do some introspection. And again, meditation helps with that. It's like you become the witness instead of the person that's just so caught up in your life that you're just, you know, when you can become the witness and start start to see yourself outside of yourself, then you, I think you get a little compassion for who you are. And you're like, wow, Ray is really scared right now. And he's he wants to do good so bad that he's stressing himself out. And it's like, that's a magical way of just kind of getting a fingernail in between a piece of paper that you couldn't access before, you know? So, yeah, I hope some people can get something out of it because it's been just by default. Like, I was like, I got to write this book for me. And because I'm that guy, I'm the guy that like, you know, nothing came easy to me, Michael, nothing. Another thing I was really curious about is, you have put out two fantastic solo records. The first one being a more jazz based record and the second mm -hmm. one being more of a rock based album. And yep. I just, I find you're playing on them and just the musicality of them just really inspiring. And I'm curious oh, about you. your approach for writing uh -huh. and what the experience was like for you to make those records. I know the jazz one is more of an ensemble piece. The rock album was mostly you. It was all me, yeah. I was wondering about what that process was like and how those came about. Yeah, um, again, it was like both of these records were kind of, you know, milestones of being up to show myself that like I am capable of doing, putting out two records as a leader. I wrote most of the songs on the first record i don't want you know i can't take responsibility for all the chord changes and all that like that was something that i was more than happy to give up because i had mike stern and john abercrombie and joe Locke, and these guys are world-class musicians that you know so i i had the i had the song idea and the grooves and i had the melodies and so they they helped me out quarterly i have a good sense of melody and like you know, so I've always had a good sense of melody. And I guess it's just from coming up, listening to lots of music on the radio and uh, being immersed in different styles and all that. So I knew they were good melodies, uh, but I needed help quarterly. And, you know, these guys are so busy, like we only get one rehearsal and that's that. So like uh, we went to John Abercrombie's house and uh, he's passed away and left us, God rest his soul, since then. And I think this was one of the last records he was on, um, which was just incredible to even think that, that he's not with us anymore. So John helped a lot with the chords and, you know, all these guys, we just figured it out on the spot. Like, let's do this, let's go here. And then Francois Mouton on bass was like, what isn't the B section do? Why don't we just go Latin on the B section? I was a like, great idea. <laughs> and so like, you know, and that was the the guidance that, 
made it sound like a record. And that was kind of done in two spurts. The first was like this EP I did with Mike Stern and Ned Mann. Ned Mann has passed away again. He uh, ALS and he was like one of the best bass players in New York City. And he played with Mike and Mike's band at the 55 bar. And Ned was really the one that got Mike to say yes to do the, the EP with me. And once I got Mike in the studio, he, you know, he was really happy with the session. And he's like, yeah, you swing your butt off, man. You sound great. So I was like, oh, my God, thank you. <laughs> I was like, <laughs> um, so you realize in that moment, like, oh, uh, uh, really? I sounded good. Like, I, I guess I can play, you know, and it's like the confidence gets boosted through experience, you know, in a lot of ways. And so anyway, that's the, my long winded version of that. Um, so the record came out and. Uh, I had went to a jazz festival with this artist, KJ Jenner, who I still play with. And she's like this mixture of jazz and folk and uh, funk. And she's really great. KJ Denhurt. Check her out if you guys are interested. She's I'm on 11 of her records and uh, I've been with her for almost 25 years. And we've traveled all over the world. And I was over there at the Umbria Jazz Festival with her and we're having lunch and I'm trying to find, I just finished the record and I'm trying to see about how to put it out on a label. And there was uh, a guy, Tom, forgetting his last name, but he wrote for Jazz's magazine, Jazz Times. And he knew a lot about record labels and he's like, try this one, try this one, try this one. And I ended up signing with Origin Records and they, they had a really great deal that they gave me. And so that was the first record. And then the second record was a few years later and it was uh i've always been influenced by rock and bowie and beatles and led zeppelin and like that's just you know that kind of in the tapestry of my my rug um musical rug so you know i had all these songs that were kind of unfinished you know i have this studio here then i have a keyboard under here and i got my speakers here and uh i have a lot of great mics and i got my drums right here and my day gig is I record music for television and I do a lot of TV cues right here. And I got the xylophone and the marimba, you know, I got the mallet instruments. I use a lot on these TV cues and uh, it's all functional stuff. Like I don't really have great chops. You know, I don't have my reading is, you know, not that great with um, I can read charts very well, but ask me to read notes. And I'm like, Oh, here yeah. we go. <laughs> but uh, so I had all these songs. And they were just half finished and some of them were just ideas. And uh, I was dating this girl and then we broke up and I was kind of devastated. And I just like poured my heart and soul into these songs. And it became therapy for me every day instead of sitting around crying to just like, you know, just get busy with writing something and stay creative. And so I had this woman that I went to and she was kind of my coach, she never told me what notes to play. She never told me play this chord. All she would say, she'd give me like ideas, like you're going down a lot with uh, your notes are going down. So maybe for the bridge, you want to take it up and contrast it. And I was like, oh, okay. She's like, maybe this section goes on a little too long. Maybe the vocals should come in quicker. And she just kind of like helped me Lego block things. She really boosted my confidence. You know, she was like, you can do this. And I'm like, do you like these songs? Do they suck? Are they any good? And I honestly couldn't answer that question. She's like, no, no, these are great tunes. And like, I wouldn't tell you that if it wasn't true. Like, so she really boosted my confidence. She's like, you got to finish this record. She's like, 
I know you're like he's sad right now, but she was like, if you don't finish this record, I'm going to kill you. <laughs> I was like, all right, I'll finish the record. So that was how that came about. And I put it out and, you know, I, on my own label and just got it out there. And it was like a really big milestone and proving that I could do this. And it really boosted my confidence as a writer. And so now I'm working on my next singer songwriter record, if you will. And, uh, same process. It's just, you know, but to answer your question about how do I write? Sometimes I hear a melody. Sometimes I hear a drum groove. Sometimes I'll just hear some chords and, you know, I'll be just messing around trying to play chords. And I'll be like, Oh, that sounds good. I have a chordal structure program that I bought from this company and they'll just play like all these weird random chords and you can put them together and I heard a keyboard player say, like, you know, we don't really know what chords work great. I mean, there's formulas, you know, yeah. two, five, one and all that. But you don't know till you start hammering out chords like, blah, 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 blah. oh, there it is. Oh, and you just kind of figure it out as you go. So that's what I do with this thing. You know, you realize, too, like a lot of people like you look up to people and you think they got it all together and that they know everything about every anything and they don't they're just like they're in the same boat you are you know it i've had all these epiphanies and like my recent epiphany was being in the studio with will lee uh paul schaefer on keys willie on bass osnoy on guitar and the session was for fred lipsius who was the original saxophonist in the band blood sweat and tears and it was 10 songs of fred's and so, but he didn't have complete tunes. Fred's been teaching at Berkeley for the last 36 years. And he's like, I've kind of been out of the loop, you know, playing with musicians. And like, he wanted it again, like what I said, he had unfinished songs and he just wanted to document them and get them finished and get them out there. He's got beautiful tunes, but there are a lot of them were unfinished. They were just heads. There was mm -hmm. no blowing, no. So we went in the studio uh, last week and no rehearsal nothing just like listen to these songs and like so talking about scenarios in your brain like i went through every scenario thinking like i'm gonna get laughed out of the studio or it's gonna go great or it's gonna they'll be feeling sorry for me or like all these things are swishing through your head and they're stories they're just stories you know and i got in the studio and like i was nervous really nervous and i met paul and like I'm like, God, I grew up watching this guy on TV and like, mm -hmm. here he is right in front of me. And oh my God. And I started getting nervous. And, and then halfway through the first song, you know, I wasn't the guy messing up. You know, Paul was like, Oh, I'm sorry. Wait, uh, you know, let's start over. And there was a lot of start and stops. And I realized like these dudes are in the same boat. Like just cause they're famous doesn't mean they got it all figured out. Like, you know, and I had this epiphany right there and it was from then on, I was still a little nervous and, you know, more concerned about playing right. And, but, you know, it was, it was just like, wow, you know, everybody's in the same boat. We're all human. We're all trying to figure it out and realize when you see somebody, you know, you're seeing a finished product and you're on the outside window looking in and they're also on the outside window looking in at a lot of things as well, but you don't see that because you just see what you see and we're all stuck in our heads. So that's my story. <laughs> well, and you tend to kind of have your perceptions about 
their perceptions of these situations and and, yeah. the, and the anxieties and the challenges that we have, as you beautifully said, everyone's got this stuff. So it's really yep. just about being kind to each other, being sympathetic yeah. to each other. Yeah. I remember playing a show once, uh, it was a Beatles tribute event and we had done a bunch of these and my friend puts the backup band together and we have a bunch of local artists, but the artists can change the song any way they want. So it's really their right. outlet Rendition. to do this stuff. And I remember doing one of the shows and we're, I'm well rehearsed, but I'm having a bad day and sound check in my mind was terrible. And mm -hmm. I was emotional the whole night, you know, and I'm just upset and right. I feel like I'm ruining everything mm -hmm. for everyone else because of me and my own problems. And then watching recordings, things afterwards, it was not like that at all. Right. I got into my own headspace. I probably made fewer mistakes because I was prepared and I let my professionalism take over and do the job, yeah. but the headspace challenge ruined kind of the experience for me. So sometimes when you step back, you realize, okay, wait a second. Yeah. I actually can do this and I'm capable yeah. of more than I expect. Yeah. But everyone runs through these, these challenges. So. Yeah. But only for you, like you, you ruined it within your mind. So Correct. you thought, but you were prepared. You hearing that kids, anybody listening, he was prepared. He did his homework. You know, so it's like if the shit hits the fan, you know, nobody can take preparedness away from you. You might be getting in your way emotionally like you were, but you're prepared. Now, imagine if you weren't prepared and you had that, you would have fell to pieces. Well, and that's one of the other things I find is that most gig anxieties are because you are not prepared for the gig. You didn't put in the time that you were supposed to put in. Yep. If, yeah. if you put yeah. in the proper time, yes, the nerves may still kick in, but you yep. will be fine. It's when you're looking at the set list going, there's four or five songs in here. I just hope we don't even get to. It's because you didn't put in the time to learn them. That's what makes a pro a pro. Yeah. It's not that you're perfect. It's that you understand what the task is and you, you start prioritizing your emotions and your, you know, what you got to do to get through this and your focus. And like, that's when focus comes back. It's like, you gotta be able to focus. It's easy for anybody to focus when, you know, things are going easy, but it's hard to focus almost impossible. If you have something emotional happening in your life, you know, it's, it's a whole, that's where the pros can pull it together and you won't know. Mm -hmm but they'll, they'll be falling apart inside, but you won't have a clue what's going on emotionally with them. So as we kind of wind up here, I have a couple of things that I just wanted to ask. One of them is what brings joy to your life these days? Uh, walking my dogs in the woods. I have a cabin upstate going up there and just going in the woods. And um, I love nature and I can just quiet and sit on the porch and, you know, just listen to the sounds. The other thing I like doing is uh, my hobby is skateboarding. And so I enjoy skateboarding. I have a ramp on my backyard and I practice tricks and I pad up and everything. And I'm not trying to do anything crazy to hurt myself, but I like, there's a similarity between skateboarding and drumming of total commitment where you have to, your mind has to be all in it. And they work hand in hand with focus for me. And, um, and the skill of just doing something physical uh, and 
you know, having the focus to stay on the physical horse and ride it out for minutes at a time, rewarding for me in that way. And they, they kind of uplift each other unless you fall and hurt yourself and then gets in the way of drumming. So I don't take chances. I just, I like rolling around and, you know, just kind of, uh, forgetting, you know, just getting lost in the moment. Mm -hmm. And that's, I think that's why I love drumming so much too. You just get lost and like, I'm sure we've all had that practice session where you sit down and next thing you know, like, whoa, five hours went by. Where'd that go? And that's proof that you're in your bliss, that you're, you know, doing what you love. And I think that as musicians, stepping away from music and embracing other aspects of your life makes music that much more powerful when you come back to, to revisit. For people that are interested in hearing more about your story or connecting with you or finding out about some of the things that you're up to, what is the best way to do that? Anybody who wants to contact me, go to my website. It's raylevier.com, R-A-Y-L-E-V-I-E-R. And just shoot me an email, Um, sign up for the email list and shoot me an email and it'll go directly to my phone. And any questions you have about anything, if you just want to stay on my radar with gigs and whatever, um, that's a great way to get in touch. I'm on all the socials. I'm on Facebook. I'm on Instagram, LinkedIn, Twitter. I don't use Twitter that much, but Instagram and Facebook are the best ways to get in touch with me. Anybody that wants to take lessons, I do Zoom lessons out of my studio here. So that's basically it. Ray, it's been an absolute joy and an absolute pleasure to connect with you today. Oh man, same here. As I said, I've always been really inspired by not only your story and the challenges that you've overcome, but your positive attitude, your commitment to your craft and your commitment to just being the the best that you can. So never lose that because that's the thing that we all need to have in our lives is to watch people just embrace the joys of life. When your book comes out, I would actually love to connect with you again and kind of do a follow-up because I think there's a lot of stuff here. I think we haven't really gotten a chance to get into yet. I think it would be an absolute pleasure to connect with you again. I would love nothing more than that, Michael. Thank you. been listening to the drummer's pathway podcast please share and subscribe to get the word out and let's keep the discussion going thanks for listening and i'll see you next time